please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello again, and welcome to episode two of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three articles about asthma from the May-June 2019 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to the college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. To subscribe to Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. Well, I'm glad to be back here for our next episode. My name is Jerry Lee. Uh, I'm your co-host for the Allergy Talk podcast. I'm an assistant professor at Emory University and an assistant editor for Allergy Watch. And I'm once again joined by my co-host, Marin Kalangara. Hi, this is Marin Kalangara, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And, you know, we always have that rotating chair, and we are obviously very uh, lucky to have Stan Feynman again, uh, the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. Welcome again, Stan. Thanks. Thanks, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and, you know, uh, obviously, uh, this is a new adventure for us, and I'm not sure, Marin, Stan, have you heard anything after that first uh, podcast experience? What sort of feedback have you heard? Well, I have heard from some folks that uh, listened to it and thought it was... Uh, really enlightening, and that they thought it was a good way to learn more about some of the articles that were presented in Allergy Watch. Um, me too. I've uh, gotten both solicited as well as unsolicited feedback, and most of which has been really encouraging. Um, now I'm like, maybe I should just be a talk show host instead. Um, but uh, I'm just glad that people are finding this helpful, and I'm happy to be doing this. Well, I mean, I've <laughs> always found Allergy Watch helpful, first as a reader, now as an assistant editor, now as sort of reviewing it again, um, you know, going through this discussion, you know, we have a wide variety of experiences. And so hopefully as we continue these conversations, more of our audience will participate as well. And certainly in the show notes and at the end of the podcast, we do, we have set up an email address so we can kind of continue these conversations. Um, I can tell you as of right now, we have two five-star reviews, which is not that many, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. Um, clearly, I always get nervous about reviews, like the ones you get, like, online, you know, the, the doctor's reviews. So if you have any negative feedback, just email us first. We totally will fix it, you know, before you actually put something on the website. So I'm sorry, I'm just goofing off here. So, um, well, but, you know, it's interesting that uh, we offer the listeners an opportunity to provide feedback, which really helps us a lot. And as an editor-in-chief for the Allergy Watch, you know, it's it really the opportunity to interact with our readership and our listeners is really helpful. So please, you know, if you're listening, we'd love feedback. And, you know, that email address again, uh, if, I, if I haven't said it yet already, is allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. But we'll throw that into the show notes uh, as well. So, you know, we had a hard time choosing the articles from this uh, this issue. There's a lot of great stuff in here, but I think, uh, Stan, you want to start about something that's been a real pressing problem for a lot of allergists, these biologics. So I decided that, we, that I would present the uh, article that was uh, 
that was uh, written by um, John Oppenheimer, who always does a terrific job reviewing articles and commenting on uh, key and important articles. And he chose two um, articles that focused on a comparison between biologics. So the uh, first, uh, and, and in fact, the, the article was entitled, Which Biologic Agent Wins in Severe Eosinophilic Asthma? So he's presenting two articles, one by Casali, uh, the lead article. Uh, he was the lead author, and the article was entitled Anti-IL-5 Treatments in Patients with Severe Asthma by Blood Eosinophil Thresholds, Indirect Treatment Comparison. And this was published in the uh, January uh, Journal of Allergy Clinical Immunology. And the second article that we're going to talk about is um, by... I'm sorry, that was by Bussy. I've got these sitting here. So that was by Bussy. The, second, the, the, the other article that he did was Reslizumab compared to Benrelizumab in patients with eosinophilic asthma, a systemic literature review, and network meta-analysis. It was published in the same journal. The lead author was Casali. So this one, in fact, I think we'll talk about this one uh, This one. Um, First, which is reslizumab compared to benrezizumab, and what you know, as we all know, these are both anti-IL-5 agents. Uh, reslizumab blocks IL-5. Benrezizumab, of course, uh, blocks the receptor. And the interesting thing about this is that we don't have any studies that compare the two agents, so it leaves us kind of hanging as clinicians as to what are we going to use. So, a network meta-analysis uh, was performed to indirectly compare the two agents, reslizumab and benrezizumab. So we're all familiar with meta-analyses, but there are several different kinds of medical meta-analyses. The network meta-analysis builds evidence by combining head-to-head trials, that's a direct evidence, and also a comparable, uh, comparator trials, which is like indirect evidence. So the traditional meta-analysis includes only head-to-head trials, a network meta-analysis can, can also include non-head-to-head, and so indirect evidence. And that is a, is a plus, but it's also a concern when you evaluate the results. So uh, basically what was done is that there was a systematic review of the literature. Eleven articles were uh, identified. They were controlled trials of either rosuzumab or uh, benrelizumab in patients with uh, severe eosinophilic asthma. And um, then they went through their uh, network meta-analysis with a variety of uh, uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo type simulation methods and also Bayesian statistical frameworks. And basically the base, uh, base case efficacy analysis included 1,537 patients with blood eosinophil levels, 300 you know, cells or higher, and um, in, the be- in the reslizumab subgroup, there were 310, I'm sorry, 318 patients. And uh, the bottom line is that this, both of these agents are recommended to consider in the Global Initiative for Asthma Step Therapy in the 4-5 uh, type, you know, moderate to severe persistent asthma, uncontrolled asthma type group. So the full population uh, in the whole safety analysis was uh, 3,400 patients. So the indirect comparison, we'll get to some of the results right now, is that uh, suggested that reslizumab 
had a higher efficacy than benrolizumab, or, or benrolizumab as defined by the subgroup of patients with a severe eosinophilic asthma. And obviously they, they wanted further studies, but um, you know, they, the, the bottom line is they felt that even with high eosinophils, um, the uh, rezozumab, particularly when they looked at quality of life and the uh, ACQ scores in terms of asthma control, seemed to favor the rezozumab versus benrolizumab. So um, that was this first study. <clears throat> and, um, you know, that we'll, we'll talk about some of the problems with it. And uh, the only other thing I did want to say is that it was sponsored by um, a pharmaceutical company, Teva Pharmaceuticals, who does um, market rezozumab. So the next study we'll talk about was the one that was written, was the lead author was Bussy. That's the anti-IL-5 treatments and severe uh, asthma with eosinophil thresholds. And um, this compared, uh, was another uh, network meta-analysis that compared all three of the available uh, anti-IL-5 type treatments, the mepolizumab, the benrolizumab, and rezozumab. So in this, it included 11 studies, which was 3,700 patients. Um, and then they looked at clinical significant exacerbations or change in ACQ scores and also lung function FEV1. Um, obviously, and then you know they compared with different uh, eosinophil levels, but the bottom line was that all three treatments reduced clinically significant exacerbations and improved ACQ scores at all levels of baseline eosinophil blood count. The mepolizumab had a 34% to 45% greater effect on exacerbations compared to benrolizumab on all eosinophil subgroups. And the, there was a 45% greater effect on exacerbations compared to rezozumab in the 400 cells or 400 eosinophils greater subgroup because the studies with rezozumab were all done with 400 you know, cells uh, in the beginning. So among the patients with the highest eosinophil count, benrolizumab yielded a 110 microliter greater improvement in lung function than rezolizumab. So there was a little improvement in lung function number in that group here. So based on the indirect evidence, all three of the anti-IL-5 biologic agents improved outcomes in patients with severe eosinophilic asthma, but within the subgroups, Defining the baseline eosinophil counts, mepolizumab produced greater improvements in clinical uh, exacerbations and also ACQ scores. So then they, uh, obviously the discussion included some of the, uh, the, the differences. Now, um, in John's comment, you know, he points out that the uh, network meta-analysis does have some, some problems. And uh, when you compare the two studies, which interestingly used some of the same articles. In fact, when you look at the different articles, uh, seven of the 11 articles uh, were the same in uh, both of these reviews. And in fact, in the journal, in the uh, Journal of Allergy, in the January issue, there was an excellent uh, editorial by uh, David Mauger and uh, Andrea Apter that pointed out some of the limitations of network meta-analyses and some of the concerns with interpretation of these articles. And um, so I refer the, uh, the reader, you know, to that as well if they, you know, want to uh, pursue it. Oh, the only other thing I did want to say is that, interestingly, this study, the anti-IL-5 comparison of the three, 
was sponsored by uh, GSK, which is the uh, company that um, uh, markets Mepolizumab. So I think you need to make sure you know you put all that in you know together. But I think that this is. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see a head-to-head comparison of the two products in a clinical study. But you know the, the, the so the only thing we really have is these network meta-analyses to try to compare and try to help us in terms of making a decision of which product we need to use on which patient. You know, I remember when um, I reviewed one of those articles, and I think I submitted a review as well. Uh, I think as editor-in-chief, you were sort of very cautious about these sets of articles, given that sort of where the funding source was and that sort of thing. So I would love to have insight as your role of editor-in-chief when you receive data like this. How do you think that's best communicated to our, our, our colleagues? Well, the beauty of Allergy Watch, uh, since it's funded by the college, is that uh, we have totally uh, academic in terms of our relationship with pharmaceutical companies. So we want full disclosure of any kind of potential influence of uh, external you know, funding on any of the data. So, um, you know, not that there is any, you know, I, I mean, I'm not accusing anything. I'm not saying that. But I think that we need full disclosure. So I think it's important uh, in the journal itself, there is a uh, disclosure that you know GSK funded one and that uh, Teva Pharma you know funded the other. We need companies to help fund research like this. I think it's important, but I think that when we as clinicians evaluate the data, we need to make sure we understand that when we do our analysis. Uh, so I really enjoyed reading the editorial um, that from by Mogger and Apter. And what they've pointed out is that the big thing being that asthma itself is so heterogeneous. And oftentimes in these trials, patients are not necessarily matched for all potentially relevant clinical characteristics, at least the ones that we know of. And most of these trials also have different designs, different patients, and possibly also influencing different outcomes. So they don't necessarily provide information on patients with heterogeneous characteristics. And actually, the statement that resonated most with me was by uh, John Oppenheimer in Allergy Watch, where he says that it is quite likely that no one agent is best for all, and that no one therapy is necessarily superior than another in improving exacerbation frequency or asthma outcomes. And it's really going to boil down to performing of more pragmatic sort of real-life trials looking at each of these individual compounds. Yeah, and there's just so many considerations. And... Clearly, I'm not saying that reduction of exacerbations are going to be the number one thing or number two thing that's very important to us. Mm-hmm. But again, we're talking about different uh, you know, modes of delivery of the medication, different sort of maybe coverage, coverage issues, you know, right. side effects. And, and so you know, the, the allergen knowledge is challenged to assimilate all this information at first glance, you know, exacerbations is one of those things we're adding to the mix, but mm-hmm. I think it doesn't ignore all the other issues we grapple with when we try to make biologic selections. It's true. So you're right. And the other thing that we all have to remember when we read these articles is that the definition of exacerbation varies right. from one article mm-hmm. to another article. Yes. So, 
you know, one one person might or one article might define an exacerbation as need for prednisone or an unexpected visit. Another might say you need a certain lung function or whatever. I mean, so you need to make mm -hmm. sure you understand whatever the article defines or however the article defines exacerbation and to put that into your mix when you evaluate it. Like the most objective way to actually document, I think, is your FEB1, since that isn't subjective. A lot of them use the ACT score, direction exacerbations, which, as you said, it differs considerably among different trials. So, No, I mean, again, I'm really glad that articles like this are giving us extra information. But I think, yes, I, I'm still sticking to that holistic approach of mm -hmm. patient, you know, shared decision making and also all the different uh, benefits beyond just exacerbations. What are the other sort of logistical and and uh, uh, and, and uh, other uh, contributing factors to make an ultimate best treatment plan? Or, it's true. Or, I mean, this um, these analyses don't take into account like socioeconomic factors, yes. which play like a primary role in influencing like our decisions. So it's not necessarily real life. I would love to hear from our listeners and get feedback on what they think too. Oh yes, absolutely. I think, you know, this is another thing where personal uh, attestations and perspectives come out of, uh, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road, the real life, I think mm -hmm. you, you mentioned, Marin. Um, I think we should go to the next article. So Marin, I think you have also have a very interesting article about another biologic. That's right. So um, I think that discussion served as a nice transition into this paper that I'll be discussing by Huang et al. And this was published in Clinical and Experimental Allergy earlier this year, reviewed by John Oppenheimer again in Allergy Watch. And this discusses fine-tuning responsiveness to the uh, now, I think, almost forgotten biologic omalizumab. So <laughs> I still use it. <laughs> so there is a lot of ongoing debate clearly on how to use biologics um, because of incomplete response oftentimes, even with careful selection. With omalizumab, for instance, despite appropriate patient selection, only about 60% respond at 16 weeks. The authors of this paper investigated potential biomarkers of responsiveness to omalizumab through mechanistic studies of its action. And they prospectively investigated pro-inflammatory cytokine profiles in the bronchial tissues of 23 adults with severe, presumably allergic asthma in a clinic in Taiwan treated with omalizumab for four months. The mean age of this cohort was 56 years and their mean IgE was greater than 500. They used a comparator group of five mild and well-controlled asthmatics, and they used an increase in ACT score by about three points to define responsiveness, based on which 14 patients were classified as responders at 16 weeks, and nine of them were non-responders. They also calculated decrease in acute asthma flares, as well as monitored changes in spirometry. Um, the clinical characteristics associated with the response in this small sample were eosinophilic airway inflammation, higher pheno, worse baseline asthma control. The authors also looked at the expression of type 2 cytokines in bronchial tissue and noted that patients with severe allergic asthma who were responsive to omalizumab had higher tissue expression of type 2 cytokines, specifically IL-13 and IL-9, not IL-4 or IL-5, and also increased prominence of epithelium-derived cytokines, IL-33, IL-25, and TSLP in their bronchial tissues. 
the mean IgE was 542 among responders and close to about 700 in non-responders. Uh, they did not measure pheno in all patients, but the mean level was 87 among responders and 25 among non-responders when available. The authors go on to state that most responders were type 2 high as compared to only one patient among non-responders that was type 2 high, although it's a little unclear as to exactly how patients were endotyped, since they also state that there were three non-responders with eosinophilic airway inflammation. Uh, among res responders who underwent follow-up bronchoscopy at four months, they found a significant decrease in expression level of epithelial cytokines and also a decrease in IL-13. And this was consistent with a significant decline in phenol levels from 87 to 41 in responders, whereas no significant change was noted in non-responders. There was no comment on the trend in blood or airway eosinophils, although persistent high peripheral eosinophil counts have been associated with decreased responsiveness to omalizumab in a separate report. I chose this article since I thought this would be a nice segue from a discussion on choosing the right biologic. Um, this paper did cover a very small sample, and there was an information regarding clinical history, including age of onset, uh, the pattern of inhalant sensitization, which would help in phenotyping these patients further. But it still highlights how within this sort of broadly similar population of uncontrolled asthmatics, adults with elevated IgE, Heterogeneity in the degree and possibly the kind of type 2 response influences responsiveness to omalizumab. They noted a prominence of epithelial cytokines, um, the alarmins, as well as IL-13 among responders, which was reflected in elevated pheno since it's a marker specifically of IL-13 activity and heralds responsiveness to omalizumab and dupilumab, in contrast to anti-IL-5 agents, which are not linked with pheno. So I thought despite its drawbacks, this was more of a real-world cohort and the need of which has been described uh, to further understand the role of biologics in individual patients. I agree. I thought it was a good uh, real-world type. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought it was interesting that, uh, and, and I think we do see this since we've had this experience for a number of years using um, uh, omalizumab, that uh, the patients who don't respond as well are the ones who have problems with chronic rhinosinusitis, or they have uh, mm -hmm. recurrent infections, or uh, you know neutrophilia and things like that. So that's it. Kind of reaffirms that um, you know that those may not respond as well. Right. So again, it seems like uh, from reading the article, if you have concurrent rhinosinusitis, right. you may be more of a partial responder to amlozabab. And I wasn't right. sure if anyone's looked at the other biologics. And I'm just invoking that because I'm thinking right. about dupilumab mm -hmm. and it's sort of new indication right. for yeah. nasal polypulpsis and chronic rhinosinusitis, which is not the same thing here, yeah. but you know, so, it, it's, it's an upper airway indication. Mm -hmm. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? So of course, like one of the well-recognized phenotypes of severe eosinophilic asthma is that of concomitant um, nasal polyposis, a subset of whom have AERD. And all of the biologics, as far as I know, have been evaluated in um, this phenotype. And I think the most successful has clearly been dupilumab based on the fact that it's the one that's currently FDA approved. Um, and again, I think the heterogeneity in, even within this particular population makes it hard for me to comment further on the potential utility of 
say, anti-IL-5 therapies in individual patients, um, I know that they're also currently looking at PGD2 antagonists, specifically in patients with um, nasal polyps, because of the presumed role of um, mast cells in propagating eosinophilic as well as ILC2-driven inflammation in these patients. Um, but I'm excited that dupilumab is approved, though. It's finally to ha- nice to have something that's on the table besides uh, um, nasal steroids and Oh, well, especially if you don't have asthma. Yeah. I think that that was sort right, of the killer right. for me. Oh, you don't have asthma? Really? You don't uh-huh. have asthma? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you know, for our listeners, uh, it was just approved a few days ago before we recorded this. So yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of excitement in the allergy community to have another option right. for therapy. You know, I mean, and especially like say in my like fungal sinusitis patients, only 40% of whom have concomitant asthma and who are especially refractory, it's nice to have another option. All right. Very good. So uh, I'll, I'll review the last article here. And this sort of is very similar to uh, the Sigma trial that was published last year as well, though this focused on adolescents. So um, you know, the background is, uh, for those who are not familiar with the Sigma trial or the recent revisions in the GINA guidelines, there's this uh, sort of key uh, study that compared maintenance and reliever therapy using budesonide for motorol as your single inhaler versus daily controller therapy, which we now, well, I mean, not maybe changing in the future, but we've done historically for years as the cornerstone of asthma therapy. And, you know, when they did this, this sort of pivotal trial, they did note that in terms of, you know, reducing exacerbations, there was non-inferiority that if you gave budesonide and formoterol as needed and the patient would take it just like their rescue inhaler, they would have very similar exacerbation rate. Now, they did see a difference in, you know, symptoms uh, in that trial. But I recall that, you know, some people said, well, maybe that's good enough, you know. And so, you know, GINA 2019 codified that. You know, they sort of took, ran with that and say, okay, well, that's convincing enough that that's something that our, our patients are going to want. So this uh, is a very similar study um, that, again, I think Stan is always reminding us uh, about the background. So this is another study that was, you know, sponsored by AstraZeneca. Um, and the lead author actually is an AstraZeneca employee, where they did a post hoc analysis of uh, seven AstraZeneca studies that have examined this sort of maintenance and reliever therapy strategy for budesonide. But the, the focus of this of this uh, pulled analysis was in the adolescent population. So they specifically looked at that 12 to 17 uh, year old population. Um, I know I have a fair amount of those in my clinic and you know obviously we have clear issues about persuading someone to take a medication without symptoms. I think that that's always very hard to persuade most patients, but you know, whether adolescents are different or not, you know, I think people have different opinions. So, you know, what they did was they uh, recruited patients for these AstraZeneca studies. They were, uh, you know, 12 to 18. They had asthma longer than six months. They sort of had continued symptoms despite a daily inhaled corticosteroid. Uh, about five to seven studies had an exacerbation the past year. And so what they did was they compared this, this, 
as needed uh, therapy uh, with using an inhaled steroid long-acting beta-axis combination, budesonide for motorol, versus doing uh, the traditional daily controller. Now, as part of that study, there was a lot of variability in what that meant, right? So there was variations in was the as-needed therapy 80 over 4.5 versus 160 bisonide over 4.5 for Motorol? Um, was the control therapy just steroid alone, bidesonide 320BID? One did, you know, fluticasone salmeterol discus, you know, up to the 550. Um, so, you know, again, there was some heterogeneity about the studies, but the principles were about the same. You know, were you using it as needed or were you using it comparing to what we think is the standard, some sort of controller between inhaled corticosteroid or ICS LABA with sort of an as-needed um, bronchodilator. And, you know, they looked at six-month and 12-month outcomes. The primary outcome they were looking at was time-to-first exacerbation, but, you know, they looked at a whole bunch of other secondary outcomes that you would expect, like, you know, symptoms and nighttime awakenings and peak flow and FEV1. So, Overall, they had 1,847 adolescent patients, and when they examined the data, if you look at the primary outcome, which is that first exacerbation, um, they, they had about a similar uh, similarity between the as-needed, the maintenance of reliever therapy strategy versus the standard daily controller strategy. Um, and when they also looked at the sort of secondary outcomes as well, um, they did see, again, not in all studies, some improvement in some of that secondary outcome stuff, such as the control scores, asthma symptoms, nighttime awakenings, and lung function. But unfortunately, because of heterogeneity amongst all these AstraZeneca trials, you know, that was sort of uh, difficult to make firm conclusions, right? Uh, so, you know, they do that sort of heterogeneity test. And unfortunately, that, uh, I believe, was not significant. So safety was about the same, um, you know, and, and so on. But overall, the conclusion of the study was that as well as the adult population in adolescence, and specifically if you're especially perceiving some of those issues like non-inheritance or something like that, this may be at least not inferior to uh, prevent exacerbations. Now, I, I can tell you that, you know, when we think about the pluses and the minuses of the strategy, and I'd love to hear comments from both of you, you know, ultimately, you know, what is the objective of asthma therapy? And, 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 and clearly one of those objectives is keeping them out of the doctor's office in the emergency department. That is certainly an objective. Another objective is asthma symptom control. They can play sports. They don't have limitations. That is an objective. Now, again, in that Sigma trial, they did show decreased asthma symptoms. Now, the third objective, I think we have zero data on. Okay, not zero, but not enough to make conclusions. And that is that long-term remodeling issue, right? Now, I think a lot of people quote that original camp study that showed that inhaled corticosteroid did not modify the uh, reduction in lung function. But we do recognize that there are some studies, whether animal work or human work, that it, there is some improvement in some of these metrics we look at, airway remodeling, 
if you give maybe higher doses of inhaled steroids or look at different parameters. So the big question is this. We have growing children who we know could be at risk for remodeling with chronic inflammation. We can use this strategy to help certain outcomes, but do, do, does that strategy increase the risk for some of these other, other outcomes? And the one that interests me the most is remodeling. There's going to be multiple days where they have no anti-inflammatory therapy. I don't know. What's your feeling about that? I, and and I, obviously, we're talking without data, I think, unfortunately, which is unfortunate, right? I, I hate to say that. Uh, or maybe limited data. I don't know what your interpretation is. Well, would be. you know, I, I, I think you're right. We need some more data about remodeling. I mean, we still, as a clinician, we don't have a good way to measure it. And we don't know if patients are developing it or not. I mean, we're using our uh, tools that we have, you know, our uh, asthma control test, our FEV1, uh, in some cases mm -hmm. the uh, pheno. But, you know, it's not easy. And, and I, I think we're really limited. We don't know if patients are getting remodeling or not. So... Uh, we, you know, we may need you know some other studies. The interesting thing to me is that this is kind of how patients are doing it now, especially our adolescents, mm -hmm. in terms of using their uh, long-acting, uh, you know, their combo medicine, I ICS, uh, LABA, uh, frequently intermittently like this. And I think it was interesting that Brad uh, Chips, who uh, cited this article uh, in his review, uh, mentioned that. Uh, the findings support the potential development of an albuterol-budesonide uh, combination therapy that could be used both as a con controller and as a reliever mm -hmm. for asthma. So it doesn't really answer your question about, you know, ongoing remodeling when there's no treatment, but it is potentially a reliever that's not as long-acting uh, along with an inhaled steroid. Um, in regards to your point about remodeling, it's something that I've always wondered about with my non-compliant adolescents where their spirometry doesn't necessarily look terrible, but probably underestimates the severity of the inflammation. Um, but again, it's one of those things that we can't really foresee without like very finite like remodeling endpoints. Um, I don't think I've ever seen, you know, trials looking at the effects on something like airway ball thickness or like on, or quantifiably on CAT scans or anything like that. But yeah, we, you know, they have to do scopes, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. endoscopies. I mean, and it's, you know, invasive. I mean, it's, it's very complicated to do. Yeah, it's a very complicated like issue. But again, when we saw that sort of follow-up study where they were following the camp participants of the 30s and we're seeing those different patterns of loss of lung functions meeting like COPD criteria when they're mm -hmm. older, you know, you again, I, I'm not saying that there, I have any proof to say that this strategy would increase that risk, but that's something that has to be monitored for. I think we have to convince ourselves of the short term and the long term consequences when we make these guideline decision changes. That's right. all. And a six to 12 month trial is not going to be sufficient. Right. That's very true. That. And especially yes. since we know that remodeling happens early in asthma. So, good point. All right. Well, um, again, those are the three asthma articles we choose. And let me tell you, we had some other ones we could talk about, uh, but we're trying to keep it on the shorter side. I want to echo Stan's previous comment that, you know, your uh, thoughts as well. We, we appreciate your thoughts we, uh, and your participation in not only the podcast, but also uh, Allergy Watch as your source for staying up to date. So again, that email again is allergytalk.com 
at acaai.org. Please send us your feedback and comments and suggestions for improvement. Um, and again, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and if you do see us, you know, on iTunes or, or so on, please uh, 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 give us that five-star rating. Um, again, we can get more than two. All right. Uh, we want to also uh, <laughs> recognize the college, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for sponsoring this program. And of course, uh, members of the uh, ACAI uh, get Allergy Watch for free. So that's uh, a member benefit. So uh, thank you to the ACAI. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, have a wonderful day, everyone. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee was on an advisory board for Tiva. Dr. Kalangarda has received consulting fees from AstraZeneca, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI Shire and has done research for AIMUN, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.